0: Hey there, and welcome back to the This Week in Fintech podcast, where we aim to get behind the curtain some of our favorite fintech founders to hear their honest journeys of building their companies. I'm your host, Jillian Williams. Partner at Cowboy Ventures. Today's episode of hey Tech Friends is sponsored by Brex. Brex is a financial stack created for founders by founders that helps startups optimize their finances at every stage of growth. So you've got that first investor check in hand, but you need a place to put it to work. With BREX business account, you can safely store, move, and grow that cash. And as your business scales, Brex corporate cards, reimbursements, and automated bill make life just that little bit easier. Founders don't spend all day worrying about where your money is at. Get back to building when you use Brex, the financial stack that scales with you. To learn more, visit brex.com/btp. That's b-r-e-x.com/btp. Welcome. Today we have Alan and John. Thank you both so much
1: for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Excited to be here. Yeah, thank you.
0: Yes, I'm excited to chat with you guys about your founding journey and the story of Cognito and its acquisition and the transition and integration into Plaid. And so before we begin, um, I'd love to start just kind of for those who don't know with each of your backgrounds and how you met and how you decided to to found a company together.
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, I think we we both had (laughs) relatively short backgrounds uh, before we met each other. We met in college. so we were both uh, at Stanford at the time, and uh, we both joined this class called startup engineering. And uh, my pre-major advisor and also the professor of that class at the time was this guy called Balaji Srinivasan, who is a, sort of a, an outspoken Twitter <laughs> a Twitter pundit of sorts nowadays, um, uh, who a lot of people know. And uh, he was really into running these once weekly hackathons. And so John and I and then a handful of other people uh, were always the people who hung out until 4 or 5 a.m. at these hackathons every single week, you know, exchanging stories. Balaji would tell us, you know, his his wild opinions about the world and how things should work and how technology could transform the world. Uh, And of course, you know, we were young, uh, impressionable, uh, you know, 20 year olds uh, who were very excited about anything he had to say. And, uh, you know, we got onto the topic of Bitcoin and uh, we started this thing called the Stanford Bitcoin Group, which was sort of like a, an, a higher education, uh, one of the first higher education uh, cryptocurrency research groups. And one of the first things we looked into was the use of Bitcoin to reduce the cost of remittances. Uh, we thought, you know, if you're, you know, you grew up in China, maybe you move to the U.S., you make some money, you want to send money back home call it $200. You're easily paying 20 or $30 in fees to do that, uh, at least at the time, which, of course, is crazy. Uh, So we thought, okay, maybe crypto can reduce this. Uh, Long story short, that sort of part didn't work out. But as part of it, we had built a bunch of identity tech uh, in order to facilitate that use case. And so we kind of had this last ditch effort. We're like, all right, let's just try to productize this identity and anti-fraud tech, see if other crypto companies need it. So we went to Reddit, went to r slash Bitcoin, posted this thing called, like, we want to help crypto companies with uh, KYC and identity verification, which was very controversial at the time, because people thought that Bitcoin companies didn't need KYC. So um, that was like, a, a uh, you know, the, the very beginning of it. And we kind of got our start from there. And uh, that was sort of how we originally met.
0: I always love the founding stories of when you're building one product, but then you kind of learn about another pain point along the way and so when you were building initially the remittance product like what was it about the the kose some of the identity challenges that made it that that was what you wanted to really focus on um
1: you know to be entirely honest with you at the start we were both very unsure about it we were just kind of like eh, we don't know if this identity thing is that interesting but it was genuinely something that was difficult for people to solve. So we thought if we had the pain, others almost definitely did. Um, and it was only through a lot of time and getting to know the industry and working in it really hard that we began to love it. So I, I think that there's, a, there's definitely a lesson there where it's like, if you spend enough time on any given thing, you can learn to love it. And this is something that I mean, now I, I love identity. And it's like a very cool thing that I Um, you know spent a lot of time thinking about the future of so
2: yeah and I I think that that also uh sort of lines up with like how we were exploring just products in general at the time so uh, our intention just even in college was sort of to build a bunch of different products or you know potential companies but just like sort of start off with the basics see what felt right and uh what seemed interesting and so I got a lot of different low stakes uh, exploration, and uh, we you know we wound up ex- experimenting with that in the verification and found that a lot more people seemed to want it people that we knew and uh, that sort of what got that flywheel going a little bit more. Got it.
0: Yeah, it's not the most shocking that uh, compliance, especially fintech compliance, <laughs> wasn't the top of mind for for two college students. Um, but what was it about like each of your skill sets or the way you guys work together that made you say like, yes, we want to found something together and made you know that you were the right co-founders for each other.
1: Yeah, maybe, um, I think for us, it went back to this project that we worked on called Replace Reader. John, I don't know if you, (laughs) I feel like you're better at this story.
2: (laughs) Sure. Um, Yeah, so Alan and I knew each other through that class that he mentioned, startup engineering. And through that, we both already sort of uh, like had taken a liking to each other because we both Enjoyed doing these, these hackathons very late, liked working on you know, our respective projects at the time. Uh, and I think we were both very good at it, too, at least for 19-year-olds. And so there, there was a, at some point where uh, Google decided to shut down uh, Google Reader, which is their RSS Reader, and pretty much anyone that used RSS Readers used that. They decided to shut that down, and I called Alan, and it uh, sounds a little corny, but this is actually what I said. Uh, we didn't know each other that well, and I said, do you want to go viral tonight? Uh, and I, I just had the, the idea of like we should build a thing just in response to this uh, where uh, we have a, like a website where it's got all the different uh, like RSS reader alternatives and you can vote for any of them by going on there and then tweeting at I'm going to replace reader with and then the name of the name of the product and so you'd use the two hashtags and then our app would just, scraped all of Twitter every every few minutes to see what people's votes were and tally them up. And yeah, it, it actually did go very viral and it uh, was a lot of fun to build. And uh, that was sort of the first project we did. And then we sort of launched into what I talked about with just building a lot of different stuff for fun maybe. Neglecting schoolwork a little bit in order to get as much of that as possible.
0: Terrific! And so, when you guys started this full time, uh, were you still in? Were you still in school, or had you graduated? Or, or what was that like?
1: Yeah, we were still in school. Uh, honestly, it got to the point where John was doing ninety percent of uh, a group project this time, and then I would do ninety percent of the group project the next time, and we'd take turns so that we'd have enough time to work on the company on the side. Um, and then eventually we were just like, oh geez, this is not sustainable. So <laughs> we eventually then dropped out to work on the
2: company. But we also had this. Uh, we, sorry, we had this um, intention though, though too, because you know we were at Stanford, and this is you know there are a lot of people there that were sort of enamored by the concept of startups, and we sort of had this, I guess, disagreeable perspective on it, which is like, you know, it's great that we all love startups, but we're we're also still kids, and I think that one of the things that we need to uh, like, hold ourselves to is basically not actually like leaving school until we've got something that is starting to generate money and has actually actual customers like wanting to use it. And that was a very hard thing to do when you're two 19 year olds still in school, no compliance background, and building a product like this. But we eventually got a customer, and that was sort of uh, like our lease to at least take some time off to explore this. And then we, uh, you know, it eventually turned into a long term thing
0: yeah maybe that's a great segue so I mean especially being so young and founding a company in a regulated space where I mean if, if you're talking about financial services everything moves pretty slowly the uh, especially within compliance like trust is crucial like what was that like trying to convince um, institutions or, or fintechs like to work with you when you were new and on the younger end as well
1: Oh my God! It was impossibly tough, <laughs> as you can imagine. Just based on the framing of the question, you can tell it was uh, it was a tough journey for us. And honestly, that's uh, that's why it was actually this wasn't even really intentional by us, but we knew we wanted to focus on an industry. Um, you know, we we took the Y Combinator playbook to heart with every decision we made. And one of the things that they say is like solve one problem for one specific demographic extremely well. And for us, it was solving identity verification for crypto companies really well at first. Crypto companies were just a different breed. They didn't care if we were nineteen-year-olds. Uh, they didn't care that we had no experience doing this at all in the past. They just wanted their problem solved, and it was purely meritocratic, uh, which is fantastic. And you know, obviously, we sort of expanded beyond crypto from there. Once we had more credentials, and you know, we got a little older, and you know, we had some kind of a track record of uh, being able to solve fraud and compliance problems for companies. But um, yeah, I I almost entirely uh, attribute our early success to to crypto companies welcome, being welcoming to us.
2: And then we, I'll get into this, or we might get into this later too, but the company sort of went through stages in terms of the product we offered. And the first product that we offered uh, was very much the theme of it was just like nailing down a few different compliance uh, problems for basically th- uh, crypto companies uh, in a way that lets them, you know, get past this hurdle and get back to their business as quickly as possible. And so that was, uh, I think, probably especially important in the early stages too, because those are the companies that, um, you know, are like one day solution that works, um, but, you know, can tolerate us moving fast and trying different things, but also being new to the space. And it was only sort of over time later that we transitioned into different products to targeting more mature companies that I'm sure that we probably wouldn't have been able to get in the early days. And those small customers in the beginning also sort of let us over time grow, You know, the logos associated with our product because they're all small at the beginning, but then they grow into you know larger companies and that sort of let us get a little bit more into the mid market later. Absolutely. And how did you,
0: especially in the early days, deal with that rejection and know that, hey, we're still on to something, even when it was harder to kind of break through and show that, like, we might be young, we might be a new company, but like, but we're building something that's real, and that's needed.
1: From my perspective, it was definitely just a rational belief in oneself, uh, (laughs) which I know John definitely agrees with this one. We've talked about it a lot. It's like, I don't think we would have been able to get through the first few years if we didn't have this truly irra- irrational, I just wanna highlight that, irrational belief in ourselves. There was no reason for us to actually be potentially good at this. Uh, we had no uh, you know, uh, connections that other people didn't have. Uh, honestly, we had very few skills that other people didn't have. It was just through this sheer uh, force of will that we were able to get better Uh, and just force ourselves to, uh, you know, improve every single day so that we could make a better product uh, and eventually, uh, you know, do pretty
2: well. So uh, I don't know
1: if that kind of answers the question, but...
2: To frame that, like, what that sort of feels like, we sort of, like, on the one hand, had this very, like, uh, strong confidence that if we put in enough effort into basically whatever we choose to do, but in this case, identity verification, that over years, we'll we'll create something that's really good. And then at the same time, this is before we had dropped out, like when we were sort of, I think, just transitioning from uh, like Bitcoin remittances to exploring this idea. I remember a night where we were like sleeping, we we were like for a few months, we were sleeping on a friend's like floor uh, between freshman and sophomore year of college. And I remember us Googling, uh, how does identity verification work? And then trying to figure it out. So there's like that confidence on the one hand, and then on the other hand I did like, it's very apparent that like we don't know anything yet. I like that, I like the irrational confidence.
0: Um, And so maybe switching a little bit to the team side, in the early days, what was it like building your team and convincing some of those key first hires to to join you on this mission?
1: I think that was honestly one of the toughest parts for us starting the company. neither john nor i had any kind of real network in the valley at all i moved from switzerland for college and so i literally knew nobody in the bay area you know john grew up in virginia and then again moved uh, here for college so he really didn't know anybody uh, and especially not in like the startup space uh, in california so for us we had no one to tap into right what a lot of people do is they came from you know google or facebook or something like that they bring their best friends they bring their colleagues who were the uh, you know the a players that they worked with and they seed that team with that group of people and then also we didn't see through college and a lot of the people who we were still uh, who we went to college with were still in school and were probably not going to be dropping out for you know, a compliance company uh, that someone had created, uh, two 19-year-olds had created. So it was really tough for us to figure out where should we source people, first of all, uh, and then subsequently, how could we even convince them to join? So uh, I think that that difficulty in hiring really forced us to stay actually quite small for a long time. And we just had to figure out a lot of different components. Like John had to go really hard into the full stack of the engineering so that we could absolutely crush it. And then I had to go really hard into the sales and business side to make sure I actually understood how to sell these kinds of products, which I think was probably actually a good thing because it forced both of us to become much more disciplined and better at our respective crafts as young people. Uh, And then it became, once we became good at those things, it became much easier to convince others to join us.
2: Then uh, like one theme that I think through a lot of this discussion like when we sold the company to plat we were 18 uh people total including founders and so yeah the team was always small um and yeah we had to focus a lot on our respective like uh like sort of individual contributor contributions to the company early on because we it was just hard to bring people in and yeah just the amount of forces that were sort of that made uh hiring very difficult in the beginning right like um compliance company People say hire your friends, but you know, all of our friends are are still in school. Um and you know, not in a flashy space. Uh and we also sort of had this disagreeable sort of perspective on how we wanted to do at least cognito, which was uh, you know, we didn't want to raise tons and tons of money just because we only ever raised two million dollars. And so um, you know, one one path you could take in order to overcome this hiring hurdle, if you wanted to raise a ton of money, is to raise, you know, lots and lots of money and then pay really top of market to just get people that you don't know, but you can always bring in some talent, but we're operating conservatively and, you know, had a limited network to leverage. So we really had to uh, do our best to just do things on our own. I will give one shout out though, which is um, that we did find through um, our third co-founder, Chris Morton, we found uh, an engineer named Daniel Galhan who joined, originally as an intern in the first year or two and became one of our key engineers and been with us for, how long What is it at this point? Eight years, nine years.
1: Yeah. He's a, he's a lifer. So yeah.
2: Uh,
0: and so how did you guys learn in both in terms of your own skills as founders and the roles that you guys took on, but then also kind of learning what greatness in the candidates that you were interviewing and hiring look like especially given you were just from college you hadn't been at any of these whether startups or large companies before how did you learn like what types of people you needed to be or you needed to hire to be excellent at these roles Uh,
1: i think it depends on the role so on the engineering and design side that was a lot of trial and error like we we went through a lot of not amazing hires (laughs) in the early days and then Eventually, iterated our way to understanding what it meant to be, you know, fantastic engineers and uh, fantastic product people. And then on the sales side, there was a little bit. There was also a degree of that, but uh, our third co-founder uh, also had uh, he had been through YC one time before, and so he had a lot of good advice for us on that side of, you know, what to look for, what not to look for. Um, and I think that was very. That was very helpful because it was just an area that I knew nothing about at the time. Um, and so he, he provided that initial experience.
0: Did you ever think about relying on and maybe this had to do with the network as well, but like advisors or finding people who you guys admired in certain roles and, and trying to tap into them, even if obviously you couldn't hire them, but trying to kind of learn from them, or or how did you kind of augment your own your own skill sets?
1: So honestly, I almost wish we had done more of that. Uh, I think we all, we kind of had this perspective that advisors would never really know the business as well as we did so they couldn't help us in the ways that we needed them to help us and so we really forced ourselves down a much harder path than we needed to of needing to figure it out by ourselves um, but honestly if you back out part of it was just that we didn't know where to turn we didn't know who to ask we didn't know who these advisors even were um, i'd say once we then did join yc uh, in 2014, things got a little easier. Cause there we could start asking the partners questions. Um, we were assigned to a handful of them who were really fantastic um, and, and gave us some some good advice.
2: Then I think on, on my end, even if we weren't seeking out and having regular discussions with advisors, um, I do sort of look back and see somewhat of a pattern both across engineering and also product where um, even if you don't have mentors, when you identify things or people in the world who just seem to be really good at a specific thing that you also need to be good at, uh, I would sort of follow this pattern of like identifying that person, maybe it's an engineering or maybe it's a company that's like really good at product in a certain way and just sort of hyper fixate on like what is like good about what they're doing and just trying to get as intimate understanding of it as possible. I try to work with those engineers at, like even in my free time if possible and, and learn more from that and that was sort of a, a hack for like Self mentorship from and like absorbing knowledge from like the outside without necessarily having an explicit mentor relationship.
0: And so, maybe changing gears a little bit, but we talked a little bit about the early days of some of the rejection from customers and whatnot. But then you mentioned the evolution of the product, and so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and go into like when did when did you feel like it was clicking and working and and that you had something special.
1: Um, yeah. So. Uh, the first version of the product uh, was very much around this idea that we wanted to be the stripe of identity verification. That was the the concept. So we wanted to make a really fantastic developer experience, make it so that instead of having to go through these lengthy contracting processes, we need to talk to salespeople and then sign 12, 24 month agreements, whatever it was, you could just sign up, get your API keys and get going. Um, And that was actually great and that got us to our first like million dollars a year in revenue Um, but then it kind of petered out from there i think it took us something like two or three years to get to that first mill and then we kind of just plateaued there for a long time um and we were like okay this is weird because i remember when we started the company i told myself if we ever get to a million dollars a year in revenue we've made it we're done like at that point, you just scale the company and, you know, you've got a billion dollar company, no problem, easy. But we got to this million dollars a year. And we were just like, geez, this doesn't feel like how we thought it was going to feel. And it was a really, I mean, that was that felt very, uh, uh, I mean, if anything gives you imposter syndrome, it's definitely that. Uh, And so uh, we kind of went back to the drawing board. Um, You know, morale was definitely very low. And then, uh, you know, we kind of discovered that You know what what could be the future of identity verification here and we realized that phone numbers were becoming such a big part of people's lives uh, because smartphones were getting really popular and we thought you know what if we could tie people's real world identity to their phone numbers instead so instead of doing what was the industry standard at the time i'm sure you've gone through these they ask you questions when you're signing up for a financial account they're like Uh, you know, what color was your Honda civic in 2008? Uh, you know, who is your mortgage provider? Those types of, so that was the status quo of authenticating identity at the time. And we were like, okay, perhaps there's a better way to do this. So we circled in uh, on this phone number concept. Uh, so we connected the phone number with your name, date of birth, address, social security number. Um, we put that project together. Honestly, we completely rewrote it from the ground up, which is something that people tell you never to do. They're like, never rewrite your products Uh, because it's never going to be successful. But in this case, it was actually pretty important because we had a lot of legacy tech from when we were still learning how to do things in the very, very early days um, that we were able to kind of discard. And uh, we were way better the second go around. Uh, We put this out and then within like three to six months, we had already reached a mill error for the new product. So we were like, oh, this is what product market fit feels like.
0: And to clear you had completely thrown away the previous product?
1: No. So uh, it was still we were keeping it running as like a separate platform uh, that people could just keep using self-serve and it was chugging along. But yeah, we released this new one as like the daring new take on the company uh, and it just took off super quickly. Uh, And we were like, oh yeah, this is way better. (laughs) This is so much better. Um, We eventually built, uh, you know, we then kept on expanding the product as you'd expect. And uh, at that point we were still very API based. So we had no direct, Uh, direct consumer interaction. But then towards the end of the company, before we sold, we launched this thing called Flow, uh, which had this really beautiful user interface and like started to introduce us to the end consumer for the verification experience. And it was a much more ambitious take. And again, that one then, uh, you know, achieved even faster revenue growth rate than the original or than the the second product that we had created. So over time, we just got better at understanding market need and then matching that to a solution uh, and releasing that quickly and uh, and being able to scale it up
0: got it okay perfect and so i guess how did, do you guys think of yourselves as uh, like each time did you think that each time we kind of develop this new product was it like we're getting better at this and we can kind of continue building a new product or was it like
2: damn it we should have started here
0: like this should have been where we began
2: yeah, even when we recount this it's it sort of i feel like those different phases sort of represent like you know the first one is like our outsider perspective on you know what would be something that makes sense here and that's sort of why we're doing this you know, reasoning by analogy thing like stripe before identity verification then you know the middle stage was more so some product knowledge and being like okay what is, what is like you know potentially larger customers what do they actually want and uh, starting to do a little bit of thinking about what could the future of like products in this space look like, and then I think the final product flow, which is now client identity verification, uh, was sort of uh, the synthesis of everything we learned over that long period of time, which just just like you know aggregates over all those uh, like customer rejections uh, or like you know customers that worked out or you know customer asks and stuff stuff like that, and uh, built a much more cohesive vision of like. What's the future of this industry look like? So I think it felt more so like we would build a new thing, and you're in this tough spot because it's an API. So like you can't just drop it and build an, and build a new thing. Like that sort of has to exist forever. But um, each time was sort of, you know, years of work to develop this new clarity for where we think, you know, how the market works and where how it will work in the future.
0: And how did you think about um, the growing competitive landscape and that? And did that ever um, scare you get to you, especially given your mindset of we don't want to raise a lot of capital when you saw some of your competitors of different flavors kind of raising an increasing amount of capital around you?
1: Yeah, the, the space evolved a lot uh, when we started around 2013, 2014. There was very little competition. Uh, no one technologically savvy whatsoever. Very few players. People weren't working on interesting things. So it was still it was pretty greenfield. By the time we sold to Plaid in 20, uh, at like the very beginning of January uh, 2022, um, the space was saturated. Sorry, 20, wait, was it 2021? I think time flies. Uh, I believe it was the very beginning of 2022. Yeah. <laughs> um, by the time that we had exited, the space became saturated. There were so many players, an unbelievable amount of money was poured into this space from 2020 through 2021 and um it was just it was very different so in the beginning days we barely thought about competition i think we were just doing our own thing having a good time building the products that we thought were cool and then by the end i think it became impossible to ignore competition uh, which was unfortunate and you know, uh, when we read things like Zero to One by Peter Thiel, and uh, all these other types of business books that are like, oh, monopolies are great, you know, competition is for suckers. I think I never fully understood that until recently, where I'm like, Oh, no, I I truly understand why you want to build products where you can become the owner of that, uh, of that space, uh, rather than entering a space that has um, a lot of uh, of potential competitors, because it's just a completely different experience. It's so much better to sell something that's completely net new to a market than something that's extremely competitive. So I think we're always trying to find ways that we can, you know, reinvent the product so that we don't have competitors uh, in the same sense.
0: Got it. That makes sense. And so maybe because you mentioned the acquisition, I'd love to start to transition to that. And so would love to hear more about kind of the lead up into the start of the conversations with Plaid and. Kind of what was going through your mind as you guys started to have those conversations?
1: Uh, so I think they uh, Plaid originally reached out to us in the middle of 2021. So it was all told. It was a very quick uh, process. So they reached out in the middle of 2021. Uh, they said, "Hey, we're really interested in identity. Like we think that there could be a good partnership here." And so we spent you know a month or two exploring what it would look like if we were to embed our software within Plaid uh, and Uh, you know, what would that like very deep product partnership look like? And as things evolved, I think for both parties, we realized there were just a lot of limitations by being two separate entities. And then, you know, separately on our side, we were still thinking a lot about there's a lot of competition. Like what are ways that we can reinvent ourselves so that we're able to remain competitive uh, in this space that's becoming oversaturated with funding? So from Plaid's perspective, they would be able to be, uh, get uh, they'd be able to get um, you know a much deeper integration that uh, made for a better product. And then from our side, we would be able to start seeing uh, getting more data points into the full user onboarding journey. So identity verification is just a very small chunk of user onboarding, but there's a whole bunch of other parts of it, like linking your bank accounts and um, you know funding your account and all these other things that Plaid did control. So Uh, By allowing us to sort of expand the product line into the full user onboarding journey, we could decision on more data, we could provide a better product and make something that was pretty, uh, you know, differentiated in the space. So then, you know, I'd say over the course of the next like four to four-ish months after that, uh, we went through diligence and then eventually closed it on something like January 15th,
0: 2022. When... As you were getting closer and closer, like what kind of sold it for you, and then were there any reservations? Um, were there any times when you were like, you know what, like maybe we should keep going?
1: Um, I mean, there's always reservations, especially with something where you know you're trying to, uh, I mean, you're you're trying to maximize value for your shareholders, right? And so you have the you always have the pending question for yourself, like is now the time where I'm going to maximize it, or you know. Could I wait another year or two and uh, you know potentially have a better exit event or you know based on our current growth rate it seems like we could be really really killing it uh, in a couple of years uh, and that was definitely the case for us you know even from when Plaid started talking to us through to when we closed like our rev- our revenue had grown tremendously uh, so you know we had every reason to believe that things would keep you know absolutely exploding but that being said there's also a degree of risk minimization that you want to have as an individual and like we just saw that it was going to be really hard to compete in that space without the additional resources that plaid was going to provide so we were on this fork of either we need to raise a crap ton of money and we need to really scale up this operation or we need to sell to someone strategic who has a lot of good resources and who can um you know provide us a really interesting product angle and ultimately we decided on the latter
2: yeah, I remember having a conversation with Alan around that that time. Because now on the one hand, like you work on a uh, company for eight years and it's like absolutely your baby and uh, something that you're very passionate about. And also there's like, I don't know, I think always for us, there's nothing better than working on something where, you know, you can do it exactly the way that you want to do it and whatnot. So there, there's only some top aspects there. But watching like the space over 2020, 2021, get, you know, like various competitors get flushed with probably close to a billion dollars of funding and whatnot. Uh, we were always very proud that, you know, despite our team being very small, we, uh, I think we're still able to move as fast or faster than pretty much all of the competition, even with just a few engineers. And Part of that was just Alan and I, you know, many team members, um, but, you know, I think uh, a lot especially comes out of the founders. Just worked like all the time, you know. I, I remember periods of time where like I'd maybe like leave the house like once a month, just working, you know, nonstop. And we were talking to Alan around that time, like, yeah, we either have to raise or we have to sell because we could probably keep working at this pace for another year or two, but like we just can't sustain this pace for five years. It's it's like you know very tough on you in every single way. Absolutely, uh,
0: and then maybe like. What has the integration into Plaid been like in terms of the seamlessness of the two companies? Because I know obviously that can always go different ways, and obviously plaid is not really a startup, but it's also not like it was a Google, <laughs> so it's a, a little bit different. But um, yeah, what what has that experience been like?
1: Uh, so I actually do very much credit the Plaid leadership for how the acquisition was run. Uh, from day one, they said. Uh, you know, I, I asked uh, the CTO Jean Denis a question. It was something like, uh, "You know, what are the things that we're that uh, you know we should be uh, integrating into our team from Plaid?" And he he said, "No, no, no. You're thinking about this completely the wrong way. You should not be asking what can Plaid be doing for you. The question should be, what are the best parts of Cognito that you can bring to Plaid?" And mm-hmm. that very, very subtle uh, but important distinction. Reframed how I think John and I <clears throat> thought about the entire integration process. So we were trying to find the the great things about our design and our velocity and engineering practices and and sales culture, and seeing how we could help bring those to Plaid so that we could make the broader company much better. And then you know naturally we also inherited things from Plaid that you know made us better. Um, but uh, by and large, it was really us actively trying to find ways to push. The best parts of Cognito into Plaid, um, so that was one thing. And then the other thing is that they set us up as an independent business unit. That's how it was structured from the acquisition. That's how it's still structured today. So from you know t minus one data acquisition and t plus one data after the acquisition, not that much changed. Um, you know we're we're still basically operating with the same structures with uh, a lot of the same team members and. Um, uh, I think that helped us, you know, that kind of autonomy helped us make sure that we could keep running the business in the way that we wanted to. And they really trusted us to make decisions, which I think is such a core part of a successful
2: acquisition. Yeah. Just to add a little bit more color to it too. Yeah. That's, I mean, something we were really happy about and, you know, Ply did a great job with the acquisition in a number of ways that like structuring Alan mentioned. We also brought over the entire team um, from Cognito and everyone was, I think, very uh, like we got very nice results financially out of like, joining too. Um, so the, like, the team was very cohesive in every way as a result of that.
0: Okay. And how do you how do you describe the culture of Cognito? And uh, like how does that fit into the Plaid culture? And have you been able to kind of retain that?
2: Yeah, so I can add some things. I, I think that Alan and I would probably uh, say almost exactly the same thing. But yeah, so this is like an area where it was definitely something that we really hoped would be preserved as much as possible. than Plaid. and I think it has been. And you know, not just preserved, but sort of they've encouraged us to propagate out a lot of our values. But you know, one of the requirements I think if you're going to be operating, you know, for us operating this startup at uh, with 18 people, including founders, um, an engineering team with five people, including me, is uh, like very scrappy. Um, I think that we have an extremely uh, like disagreeable team for the most part. Like everyone feels very uh, like able to uh, say exactly what they think about things. That also extends to, you know, not just like discussions about product, but also sort of how we go about our day-to-days. Everyone uh, is encouraged to be extremely vocal about like, I don't think that we need to do this as a meeting. Let's just do it async or like, you know, I'm, I'm going to drop off the meeting now because you, know, you don't need me for this. Yeah, just very focused on, I think, uh, producing quality work too. Maybe like one framing uh, that I feel like sort of fits with the culture is this uh, constant trading off and balancing between being very scrappy and then also sort of having these like perfectionist tendencies. Like we want to build something as good as possible, but we also, you know, want to do it well uh, with as few resources as possible. And that's something that uh, I think it's a theme every day.
1: Yeah, I think only thing I'd add to that. John shared all the serious ones. One of the unserious ones is we also had an extreme food culture. Um, <laughs> so this is definitely not like a, a cool valley thing, but uh, like we loved McDonald's. And then you know, as as an act of um, uh, competition between me and the the salespeople who would join, we'd have McDouble eating competitions, uh, and I just need to prove to them that I could eat more McDoubles than they could, and in one sitting. So uh, that was a, that was a weird part of our, our culture that uh, persisted through the lifetime.
0: I like that. Uh, well, this has been great. And I so maybe two last questions that I always like to to end with. Uh, the first is what surprised each of you most about this, this founder
2: journey? I guess like one thing just comparing to maybe how I, I saw it going when I was like 19 or 20, you know, I understand intellectually at the time that, um, you know, startups are a 10 plus year endeavor at the the least if if things go well, but um, it feels very different actually being like turning 30 soon now and then having done this for uh, 10 years. Um, It definitely feels longer, especially given just how much of yourself you have to like, you know, uh, give to the company. Uh, There's definitely like years and years where it just felt like, you know, in a room writing code, like like talking on Slack and whatnot. no, Alan, what surprised you?
1: The, the time, the amount of time, is absolutely by far my biggest surprise. It's like there is no world where you are able to come up with a startup idea, test it with the market, and build it in a year, and be like, "Oh, that didn't work." On to the next thing. Like, I think that if you if people do that, then they didn't give that idea enough of a shot to try to make it work by iterating on it, working on it a little bit more. Um, so it's like at the very least even for a failed startup, you need three years, in my opinion, to figure out whether that that concept is going to work. Uh, anything less, and, and you haven't actually given it the proper, uh, you know, fair shot that's,
2: that's required. Yeah, this sort of ties into like, when I talk to friends now who are considering doing the startup thing, you know, one of the themes I guess I usually probe on is, you know, on this topic of uh, grit and what it actually feels like in the long run. So, for example, when I'm talking to friends who are deciding whether or not they want to be a founder, you know i'll ask them like do you want to be do you want this to be something that dominates your life and you're and you're doing it all the time and don't picture yourself three months from now when it'll still feel fun for it to be done in your life uh you have to imagine like five years from now when like you know you're still uh you know frustrating your your girlfriend or your boyfriend and like uh because you need to work late all the time and like it, you know this thing takes priority and you know th- this period of time where it doesn't feel fun and then also until you get something that really clicks too like people on the outside it doesn't it doesn't feel like everyone sort of recognizes your de- dedication and and you know, i you know necessarily agrees that you're doing the right thing there's also this uh sort of not isolating but like this this uh you know very individualistic aspect of it over time too where it's like i'm doing this because i think that we're going to pull it off and you know alan and i can you know we know that we both feel it but it takes a lot of like self reliance over time too. Yeah,
1: actually, I actually have one more, which is the anxiety. So I didn't expect that I would literally be waking up every single morning with anxiety. I would check my phone and see this customer is not renewing, or this cu- this employee is complaining, or uh, you know this person's thinking about leaving the company, or any myriad things that can potentially go wrong for whatever reason. They're the first thing you think about every single morning for years, Um, and they never go away, right? The problems, in fact, only grow. And like the only way I got better, exactly. So the only way I got better was just through sheer, you know, getting used to it. (laughs) It sounds terrible, but like your capacity to deal with more stress increases exponentially as time goes on, you become desensitized to the stresses that you have before. And then it feels like child's play. And then new stressors come out, uh, because the the magnitude of the problem increases as your revenue grows, and as your employee base grows. Um, and so it kind of always feels constant. But then if you look back, at what you used to be able to deal with versus what you're now able to deal with, you see in retrospect that you're able to do way more than you uh, ever thought possible. Yeah,
2: back, back to sort of what uh, Alan was saying about that anxiety um, and and uh, sort of just having to deal with that every single day. I, I uh, for friends that have become uh, startup founders, you know, that I've known, I, I I remember one specifically where it clicked for me. That I'm like, okay, he, he, he gets it now. Is when he was sort of referring to you know, uh, like navigating like the abyss uh, of, of and, and sort of the way I see it is that that sort of means like compared to, I think, like having a, a job where, you know, you've got people above you and below you and you've got structure and you've got, you know, incentives the company creates and, you know, and you can check out and, and stuff like that. Like dealing with, like, as, as the friend put it, the abyss or just, you know, dealing with the harshness of reality every day is that, you know, that you've just, the only way to really solve problems is to like be constantly like dealing with the like brutal feedback mechanism or even like unclear feedback mechanism of the real world. And then to the point of what Alan said about uh, like the anxiety of it all, I think it's like a Bezos quote. I might be uh, misremembering it, but he has something along the lines of uh, like anxiety being your brain recognizing that there's a problem that you could take action on that you're not taking action on. And so that sort of connects for me because it's sort of the way that I I think I would make it go away as much as possible is just sort of putting as much of myself as possible into the company. And if I had days where I felt like I couldn't have put it, like given the company like any more of my energy, then, you know, it sort of it tires you out and also sort of addresses some of the anxiety to say, okay, I'm doing as much as I can here. Got
0: it. Perfect. Thank you guys for being so honest in that. And then the last question is if you, Weren't still working on Cognito. What
2: would you be doing? Helen and I, uh, you know, we got into this originally through sort of the uh, very fun process that I described sort of at the beginning of the podcast, which was um, just having this sort of like playful ex- exploration of different ideas and building different things. And I think for both, like, for both of us, uh, you know, we're, we're both like kind at of our core product people, and we enjoy making things. So. You know, what I would be doing, what I look forward to doing at some point in the future, too, is just sort of uh, being able to do what we did when we were 19, but a sort of more matured version of it where we can sort of uh, alternate between sort of taking a, a, a you know, more macro view of how technology is changing um, and like what trends seem interesting to us. I'd love it if we did some like, you know, analysis of different trends and, and different technologies, what we think are interesting. And sort of oscillate between that and building things and experimenting so yeah you know something where it's not supposed to be goal directed we're not trying to like come up with a new idea or something in in, in six months but just like your exploration for fun that's what i'm looking forward to the most um the thing i was going to note there too is that the building stuff is fun but also that i'm very much looking forward to one day doing that sort of macro review of everything too you know in fintech and outside of fintech because i know when you're when you're Putting a lot of time and energy in your startup all the time, it's sort of like they're doing this big painting. But at any given point, you're really close to like you know one little square where you're drawing in all the details, and you you, you uh, don't have the time to you know get like get the big picture all the time. So I'm looking forward to that.
1: I I basically re- agree with that. I'm a simple man. I want to build cool things, uh, put them out there, see people's reactions, and do it really uh, really quickly. So I think if I weren't doing Cognito. Uh, there's no specific idea I'd be working on, but just rapidly trying out new new stuff. Uh, not even, you know, to build companies, just to, you know, go back to that original sort of feel that we had with Replace Reader, where it's like you just do something because it's cool and and people like it. Um, and I'd love to to do more of that again too.
0: Terrific. Well, thank you guys so much for this conversation. It was it was really great to hear your journey, and I and I really appreciate the the honest sharing of your story.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Thank <laughs> you.